The following message is from the 2014 IBCD Summer Institute, Making Peace with the Past. In our last session, we began thinking about the power of the past and how if we let the Bible be our guide, we can't take the position that the past is nothing because the Scripture has so much to say about it. But nor can we take the position that the past is everything. At least if you mean by that, that it's all bad. Because God's Word says so much about all the positive ways your past can bless and help and guide you. We also learned about a woman struggling with depression that we called Jill. And I think we gave enough data about her to suggest that a a biological solution was certainly not going to be sufficient for her. Nor was behaviorism nor was legalism. Surely her past had some impact in what was occurring. But the question before the house then became, well, well, how do we help Jill organize her past biblically, and how do we bring the gospel to bear for someone like this? Well, first, the organizational piece. I suggested last night that one way to organize the past is by asking two key questions. One, was this event that you're struggling with initiated by your own sin or the sin of someone else or maybe even the pain of living in a sin-cursed world? So are we talking about your guilty past or are we talking about your innocent past? Are we talking about sinning or are we talking about suffering? And then the second organizational question is, well, how did you respond to either situation? How did you respond? And I suggested that gives us four possible um, categories in which to organize our past. There's the innocent past where you responded well, like Paul and his thorn in the flesh. Or entirely different is the innocent past where you responded poorly, like Naomi and her resultant bitterness. And then there's times when we were guilty. We just started it. And we're the ones who sinned. We created our own problem. But by God's grace, when we were confronted with it, we turned it around like Zacchaeus, the guilty past where you responded well, or the guilty past where you responded poorly, like Achan and his theft and his subsequent lying. And I'm simply suggesting that you can't view the past as one big lump. God is a precise God. The Bible is a specific book, and if we're going to help people put their past in its place, in part, we have to figure out with our counselees what aspect of your past are we talking about to be sure that we're applying the right principles to the right situation. Now, here's what I'd like to do tonight. I'd like to flesh out these buckets, first of all, and I'd like us to think through a little bit more about What are some principles from Scripture that would help a person who finds himself in one or more of these buckets? In essence, how do you empty the buckets? And how do you keep them empty? And I also want to encourage you all the while to be thinking about the events we've already talked about from Jill's past. Were they all the same? Should she handle them all the same way? Or would she have an organizational task ahead of her? And if so... What would that look like? And then ultimately, how does the gospel fit into um, that entire discussion? So let's start with the hurts of the innocent past. 
And let's think about bucket number one. What is required for a person who finds himself, at least in part, in bucket number one? And I think perhaps the best answer to that question would be authentic suffering. Authentic suffering. So we're talking about times from the innocent past where as as far as you can determine, the person did not sin in bringing it on, and the person did not sin in their response. What does authentic suffering look like? What does it sound like? What does it feel like? And I want to be sure that I've said, I hope it's very apparent from all the teaching that you're hearing from all of our um, lecturers. But friends, biblical counseling is not simply about confronting people who are sinning. It's equally about comforting people who are suffering. So this isn't a matter of find a sin, shoot it with the Bible verse, send the person out to memorize and pray. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I concluded a delightful case that I've been working on for some time with a man whose wife is divorcing him without any biblical grounds whatsoever. And as far as I could ascertain, there was no overt sin in this man's life. His wife, who was divorcing him, would say the exact same thing. It's not him. His pastor would have said the exact same thing. It was just a man who was going through a great period of difficulty, and I had the opportunity as a brother in Christ to walk arm in arm with him during that period of suffering. But it's not a matter of a man who was willfully sinning, who needed to be harshly confronted. And I think that um, one of the exciting things about um, where we are in the biblical counseling movement is you see a balance between those two emphases and much of what is being said, much of what is being written, uh, talking about confronting sin when we need to talk about that, and we do, but also talking about comforting suffering as well. So what does that sound like? Well, authentic suffering includes honestly acknowledging what's happening around you and to you and in you. Let me invite you to open your Bible now to Psalm chapter 73. This great psalm from uh, the pen of Asaph. And let's listen a little bit to what authentic suffering might sound like. And and friends, the challenge is that um, some of us grew up in settings uh, where we were given the impression that you just put a plastic smile on a broken heart. Or big boys don't cry. Or the best the church has to say when people are suffering is rub some dirt on it. Or rejoice evermore. No, I think the scripture would articulate a uh, theology of suffering or a sufferology. And I would suggest that um, we need to learn that well. And we need to practice that personally. I was saying in one of the workshops that I was doing this afternoon, let's face it, the best counselor is first a good counselee. And if we have not learned how to suffer authentically, how could we possibly expect our counselees to do the same? So Psalm chapter 73, let's read a little bit from what Asaph had to say. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Why? For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there's no pain in their death, and their their body is fat. And you understand, biblically, that's a good thing, right? That is a good thing. They're blessed. They're not trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. There's when you know it's really going well for you. 
when your eye is bulging with fatness, you have that much food to eat. The imagination of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They've set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades to the earth. Therefore, as people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them, they, they even say, how does God know? There's knowledge with the, and is there knowledge with the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. Can you believe that's in the Bible? Can you believe a, a man would be allowed to, to record that in what we have as Scripture? If that's not complaining, it's awful close. It's awful close. For I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. See, he's authentic. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely you have set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fall, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far away from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works. I would suggest you cannot get to the truths of the end of that psalm without going through the process of authenticity, to talk openly to our God about your struggles, to talk openly to our God about your questions, to cry out to him in honesty. You have to go through a process of suffering in order to grow in your understanding of God in that particular way. And I would suggest that if a counselee has not done that, they need to be taught a biblical sufferology. They need to be taught what it means to cry out to their God. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is Psalm 61, 1 and 2. Hear my cry, O God. Attend unto my prayer. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Don't we all yearn to know God more as our rock day after day after day? Please tell me, you would say, I want to learn more about my God who is higher than I. I want to get to the end of Psalm 61 too. If that's true, I have to go through the process articulated in Psalm 61 1 and the first half of verse 2. I have to be willing to cry out to my God. I have to be willing when the time is right. I have to be willing to say to him, Lord, my heart is overwhelmed. I don't understand what you've allowed. This hurts. This is difficult. I'm crying out to you. Then and only then can I understand him in a fresh and real way as my rock. How many of our counselees have never been taught to do that? 
They've never had anybody love them enough to, to walk them through the process of suffering. And I'm not saying we go back and relive every last event. Except I'm not talking about all that. But I am saying uh, helping our counselees understand a biblical approach to suffering so that they can handle situations that are troubling them well. And there's also the matter of seeking comfort in God, his word, and his people. And we won't take the time to read through 2 Corinthians chapter 1, but that's a fabulous passage of Scripture that talks about comfort. Well, what is comfort? Co-fortitude, gaining strength from the Lord and gaining strength from other godly people around me. That's why it's so important to be authentic. That's why it's so important to be genuine. That's why it's so important to be willing to open up ourselves to other people in our life about our struggles, about our trials, about our pains, about our hurts, so that we can join arms with them and grow together in the things of God. And for many of our counselees, they have been living like islands unto themselves. They don't have any kind of relationship. They don't have any kind of friendship. That's why the church is such a marvelous setting in which to do counseling anyway, because there's instant friendship if you'll open yourself up. There's the potential of instant relationship if you're willing to be vulnerable to the people around you. That's what authentic suffering looks like. That's what authentic suffering sounds like. And some of our counselees are stuck in their past because they have hurts, because they have difficulties, and they've never handled them in a biblically authentic fashion. Now, let's switch gears. You could, by the way, certainly think of some of the things that Jill struggled with that would have fit right in um, bucket number one. Uh, But let's change from Paul and his thorn in the flesh to Naomi and her bitterness. What do we do with events that really at least have some uh, part to play in bucket number two? I would suggest the answer there is humble analysis. And what I mean by that is a willingness not to take responsibility for what was done to you, but to take responsibility for the way you responded in a way that might not have been pleasing to God. And I would suggest this is one of the uniquenesses about biblical counseling because our world oftentimes treats individuals, especially individuals who have been abused in any way, shape, or form, as passive victims. And therefore, anything they're struggling with today is beyond their ability to control because of what was done to them. Biblical counseling, on the other hand, would say, not encouraging someone to take responsibility that is not theirs, not taking responsibility for what was done to them, but saying, as a person who was made in the image of God, you are responsible for what you did in response to what was done to you. You are not a passive victim. Never are you a passive victim. You are an active worshiper. And a sovereign God allows difficulties into our, into our lives in order to reveal what's really going on in our hearts, the true object of our worship. It's like this. If I took this bottle of water and knocked it like this, eventually there's going to be some water on the floor. Well, why is there water on the floor? Man, you could make the argument, well, it's because you were knocking the bottle. You could make an equally compelling argument that the reason there's water on the floor is because there was water in the bottle. 
had there been coffee in the bottle, there would be coffee on the floor. And see, so many of our counselees, they want to blame the way they're living today on the outside forces around them. They, they want to blame the way they're living today on um, what happened to them by others in the past. And we have to love them enough to say, listen, there's a huge difference between Ralph and Rover. You are not a dog. You are not a person who just has to go in particular ways because of the way the dog biscuits were laid out in front of you. You are a human being. And by saying this, it's not like we're being harsh or mean. We're actually treating people with the level of dignity that is consistent with the image in which they were made. You are a human being. And as a result of that, you can choose to worship God or you can choose to worship other things. And your object of worship is going to be determined in part by the way you respond uh, to the abuses, to the disappointments of other people in your life. And I would suggest to you that that is incredibly freeing to people. Because now I'm not dependent on what other people did to me or what other people might do to me in the future. Now I can choose to live for God victoriously regardless of what happened around me. So humble analysis. Asking the hard question of how did you respond in your past when people disappointed you, mistreated you, abused you, whatever word we're going to use. What does that sound like? Well, part of it is, did you return evil for evil? See, many of God's people practice selective self-righteousness. When they think about what happened in the past, it's amazing how much detail they can use in what the other person did that was wrong. Yet they can think very little about what they did in response. For example, my dad, um, he grew up at a time when there was not a whole lot of money. And as a result of that, he wanted his things kept in an orderly fashion. And part of that was his tools. And he didn't have a lot of tools, but he knew which ones he had. And he wanted them cared for properly. One of the things was his crescent wrench. It was amazing how many things my father could um, fix with that big crescent wrench. Well, one day, um, he came to me and he said, son, what'd you do with my crescent wrench? And I said, well, dad, I didn't have it. Yes, I know you had it. It's not where it belongs. What did you do with my crescent wrench? I know you left it somewhere. Where did you leave it? Well, a a couple of days later, he came back to me and said, son, I was wrong. Please forgive me. I found the crescent wrench, and it was a place where I left it. Now, Now, think about how painful that is in my past that my father accused me uh, uh, of losing something uh, that I had not lost. And it's amazing. I can remember to this day details about the setting in which that was said, how harsh he was in his anger, uh, how mean he was in his accusation. You know what I can't remember? How I responded. But I would be willing to bet dimes to donuts. And I realize pastors probably shouldn't use that metaphor, but in this particular case, it's more like an investment. I would be willing to bet dimes to donuts that that the face I used in response to my father was all wrinkled up, that the voice I used was incredibly whiny, that the way I responded to him was incredibly disrespectful. Yet why is it that I can remember in so much detail what he did what what was wrong, but I cannot remember much about how I responded We can be incredibly, selectively self-righteous in the way we remember what other people did to us. By the way, 
why do you think my dad might have accused me as being the one who lost the crescent wrench? Because the last 100 times it had been lost, it was my fault. So did you return um, evil for evil? Also this, did you develop bitterness? I mentioned this last night. Would you turn in your Bible now to Ruth? And let's look a little bit at this particular passage of Scripture. An incredible, incredible passage for sure. Here's a passage where um, Naomi, the Ruth's mother-in-law, um, has gone out from a Moab. Her husband took her along with her two sons. And as I mentioned last night, um, after the two sons married Moabitess women, both the, the father and the two sons died. And so now you have Naomi, who is a widow, and she has two daughters-in-laws because both of her sons have passed away. And so... Uh, Naomi, amazingly, the Jewish woman who should have known better, says to her daughter-in-laws, go back to your people and to your gods. That shows something about the way she responded to those incredible trials in her life. Uh, Ruth says, no, no, I want to stay with you. Your people are my people and your God is my God. And so they went back, verse 19. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem, the house of bread. Remember, they had experienced a famine. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full. Seriously? You went out during a famine. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Seriously, you've got a, a daughter-in-law standing right next to you who has refused to desert you. I, he brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Just call me Mara. And listen, obviously Naomi was not responsible for the death of her husband, uh, for the death of her sons, and we ought to weep with those who weep. And we ought to spend a lot of time gathering data about how hurtful it would have been to lose her husband, how hurtful it would have been to lose her sons. I'm not saying that we just minimize that or brush over it, but I'm saying we are wrong if we treat Naomi the same way we would treat the Apostle Paul. At some point, biblical counseling has to have a place to help our counselees understand that they are responsible for the bitterness that they allowed to well up in their hearts. And the bottom line is if they do not deal with that, they're going to be stuck in their past forever. And not only that, it's going to negatively affect a lot of other people as well. That's why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, don't let a root of bitterness, interesting metaphor, a root of something that grows up from your past, don't let a root of bitterness spring up and do what? And defile many. And at some point, we have to love people enough to help them focus on their side of the issue and deal with their bitterness biblically and put it in its place. Here's another one. Did you develop an unbiblical view of people? 
some women are abused by a man in a wicked, terrible fashion, but then those women decide that they're going to view all men through the lens of that particular abuser. That's wrong. You're not responsible for the abuse, but you are responsible for the unbiblical view of men that you developed in response to that. It's an unbiblical and therefore unloving view of people. I I mentioned last night, I think, that um, my family grew up in Gary. Say, how in the world did you get to Gary, Indiana? Well, it's actually because of my grandfather. My grandparents are actually from southwest Virginia. So they grew up in the beautiful mountains of southwest Virginia. They were involved in coal mining. They were involved in, in, in gas wells and that sort of thing. But when that kind of work became very dangerous and very unpredictable at age 40, my grandfather, like many southerners, moved from southwest Virginia to Gary, Indiana because of the steel mills. My grandfather didn't even have a car at that time. And I think now, as an older man, what it must have been like for my grandfather at that age to go from the beautiful mountains of southwest Virginia to Gary, Indiana, which was a place that was just stifled with pollution. This is long before the EPA was regulating steel mills. The pollution was rampant. There was all sorts of racial tension going on in Gary at that time. It was a very, very rough place. My grandparents moved on Lincoln Avenue, and there were people from every nation under the sun all around them. They came from the south to that kind of a melting pot. My grandmother was a a very sweet, godly woman. She was a great gardener. She was a great cook. She started meeting her neighbors. She started showing them how to garden. She started sharing her produce with others, et cetera, et cetera. Then one night, my grandfather had to work um, midnights at the steel mill. One night, a a man of another nationality, another ethnicity, came into their home and uh, pistol-whipped my grandmother. And um, my grandmother probably stood about four feet ten, and yet this man came in and pistol-whipped her. What was interesting to me was, even though she was from the South, after that time, and certainly not before, but even after that event, I never heard my grandmother utter a racial slur. Nor did I ever hear my grandmother start talking about how bad all of her neighbors were, though many of her neighbors had skin colors of every tone under the rainbow. Nor did she let that stop her from loving the people who lived around her. She refused to say that because one particular man from one particular ethnicity treated me in a way, I'm not going to write off that entire race. I'm not going to write off that entire ethnic group. And even if I hear other people around me uttering those kind of racial slurs, I absolutely refuse to respond to this trial in that way. And I'll tell you, the older I've gotten, the more respect I have for that four foot ten um, high woman. Because there was a level of godliness in that where that particular event did not then have to fester in her past. But the fact of the matter is, Some have done the polar opposite and developed an unbiblical view of people. Here's another one. Did you develop an unbiblical view of self? Look, if you would, at Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Because this, too, the Word of God gives us a very unique way of thinking about the matter of self-image. So Romans chapter 12, verse 3, in my mind, is one of the easiest ways to in a very succinct way, understand how are we supposed to think about ourselves. 
Romans 12, 3 says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. In other words, we're supposed to have a biblical view of self. We're supposed to think about ourselves the way God has um, taught us to think in his word. Now, I thread that together. Many of our counselees grew up in settings where people were saying things about them that were terribly cruel, that were terribly harsh. You're stupid, you're dumb, you're never going to amount to anything. Day after day after day, even as small children, those are the kind of things that they are hearing in their past. And we ought to emote with such persons. We ought to weep with those who weep. But I believe, and this will maybe be hard for you, I believe at some point, a follower of Jesus Christ is responsible to adopt a biblical view of self, even if that is radically different than the messages that they heard at home. I'm not responsible for what other people said about me, but I am responsible at some point to choose to think biblically about myself. I think I mentioned last night, my father was not a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, my dad was an accountant, and uh, my dad had a plan for me. And the plan was to go to Northwestern University in Chicago, study accounting, become a certified public accountant, and make a ton of money. That's exactly what he, I, I'm his only son, and that is exactly the plan that um, he had for me. At age 17, as a senior in high school, um, I heard an evangelist um, present the gospel, and I placed my faith and trust in Christ as Savior and Lord. Um, I sat down with a pastor that night who, who opened up the Word of God, and he answered the questions that I had, and the Word of God was just piercing my heart. It was like God has been reading my mail. I had to become a Christian that night, and I did. And an incredible burden was lifted from my heart, and it wasn't long after that that I started thinking, wouldn't it be a great thing? to be able to use your life to do the exact same thing, to use the word of God that had pierced my heart so powerfully in the lives of other people and show them answers from the word of God that would help them come to Christ, that would help them solve the problems they have in everyday living. And so I was attending a church at that point. I submitted myself to that local church, and I asked them, is it possible that God could be calling me into the ministry? And they affirmed that call. And it was at that point that I sit down, sat down and I had a conversation with my unsafe father. And I said, Dad, you know I've become a Christian. Um, you know what has happened to me. And I really believe God wants me to be a pastor. Here's exactly what my dad said. You would be wasting your life if you became a pastor. And he wasn't growling at me. He wasn't spitting nails. He was an unbelieving man. He had a particular view of pastors that wasn't very high. Um, he was used, because he grew up in the mountains of southwest Virginia, so he was used to a kind of pastor, and I won't go into all of that, but my dad was, I can't tell you how many times I heard him say, you are going to have um, bald tires and shiny suits. And, and what he meant by that is you're going to be dirt poor. You're going to have bald tires, you, you understand what that means, and shiny suits. Apparently to him, I would never be able to afford a suit. And it's interesting how in the providence of God, he allowed me to serve in a church that treats me so well financially. Frankly, I could go buy new tires for my Jeep any day I wanted, and I could go buy a new suit tomorrow if I wanted to, though I can't think of why I would. But the bottom line is, here I am at 17 years old, and someone who is very, very important to me is saying, you would be wasting your life if you did that. A couple of months later, 
after doing some surveys of colleges, I decided that God wanted me to go to a Bible college. And I sat down with my father and said, Dad, you know the Northwestern thing, that's not going to work out. Um, I really believe God wants me to go to a Bible college in Clark Summit, Pennsylvania, in order to um, uh, prepare to be a pastor. I, I remember exactly what he said. He said, only a fool would do that. You would be an absolute fool if you did that, and if you do, you're on your own because I'm not paying $1 for an education like that. Now, those were powerful words to a guy at age 17, really powerful words to a guy at age 17 because I loved my dad. But I believe that at that point, I had a choice to make. Was I going to think about myself through the lens of what my father was saying or was I going to think about myself through the lens of Scripture? I wasn't responsible for what he said, but I was responsible for the view of self that I developed in response to what he said. Also this, did you confront the abuser if appropriate? Now, every one of these, that, that's a tough one. And every one of these situations needs to be analyzed on a case-by-case basis. But I'm convinced that the reason some people are stuck in their past is because somebody sinned against them and they should not have, or they should have confronted that person and they have never done it. And sometimes, and again, it has to be decided on a case-by-case basis, but sometimes what biblical counseling looks like is preparing that person to go and confront the individual who wronged them and maybe even being willing to go with them and confronting the person who has wronged them. But the bottom line is I have a responsibility. That's the point of Matthew 18 and Matthew 5. If you sin against somebody, you have a responsibility to go. If someone has sinned against you, you have a responsibility to go. And you might say, well, I don't think that's fair. Well, like my theology professor John Whitcomb used to like to say, hark, do I hear a voice from the third heaven saying, who cares what you think? It's really not a matter of do I think it's fair. The question is, what does the word of God have to say? And I am so convinced that what frees some people from their past is to actually go and confront a person who sinned against them, whether it was last week or last decade, and finally get to a position where potentially that can be made right. And then if the person has asked forgiveness, have you practiced biblical forgiveness? Let all wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with, along with all malice. Listen, let's face it, some of our counselees who have been sinned against, they are living in Ephesians 4.31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking, that is the nature of their life. And when they think about their past, they think about it only from the perspective of what other people did that was wrong to them. They think they're in bucket number one when the fact of the matter is they're in bucket number two. They think they're the Apostle Paul and the thorn in the flesh when the fact of the matter is they are like Naomi. And somebody has to love them enough to free them from their past, which is why Ephesians 4.32 says, Be ye kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ's sake hath forgiven you. That's a major part of this entire presentation. It is, for many of the folks that we're working with, they think they're in bucket number one, when they're at least partially in bucket number two. And at the right time and in the right way, we have to love them enough to help them see that. Now, let's go over to the other side. Let's talk about the guilty past. 
Let's talk about times when I or one of my counselees started it. We're the ones who sinned first. Well, what do we do then with bucket number three? What do we do then with times when I sinned, but I did handle it? I think the answer there is joyful remembrance. And you might say, now, wait a minute. If, um, if I sin, but I handled it well, why do we even need bucket number three? Great question. Here's the response. Some people struggle even after they sin and even after they ask forgiveness from God, they struggle with what? I don't feel forgiven. Right? How many times have you heard that where somebody says, I don't feel forgiven, and they're stuck in that situation. I don't feel forgiven, and so I wallow in that situation over and over and over because I don't feel forgiven. Well, what does God want me to do in a situation like that? It's not a matter of how I feel. It's a matter of choosing to take God at his word. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sometimes it's a matter of unbelief. Sometimes it's a refusal on the part of our counselee to take God at his word. And they are stuck. They're stuck in that aspect of their past until we help them theologically see their, their, their lack of belief in taking God at his word. Are also avoiding the tendency to wallow. Now, I don't know if you all even use wallow here. That is kind of an Indiana word. That's what pigs do in the mud. And I understand you might say, well, that's not a very nice metaphor to use with counselees. Well, it just works. Wallowing means go, going over that sin and over that sin and over that sin. Even after, after they've asked forgiveness, after they've made restitution if possible, they keep reliving that over and over and over. Frequently they say things like, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I did that which is a very close cousin to, I can't believe a wonderful person like me did that. Do you see the problem? Now we're talking about pride. The truth of the matter is you and I are capable of any sin of the book. We ought to be more surprised when we do th something right than when we do something wrong. And so to relive that over and over and over can actually become a, a point of pride, or it's this, a lack of genuine repentance where that person is still reliving that sin because they enjoyed it, and if the situation came up again, they would do it again. So there's not been genuine repentance or this, the fear of man. Who knows? Who might find out about this? And so I'm spending so much mental time worrying about who knows about this or who might find out or what are other people saying about it. Or another reason we wallow in our sin is because we are unwilling to forsake it. Proverbs 28, 13, he who covers his sin shall not prosper, but he who confesses and uh, forsakes it, it shall have mercy. And the bottom line is for some of our counselees, they did, that uh, they sinned, they asked forgiveness, but they've not taken the steps to forsake that sin. So avoid the tendency to wallow and find out from our counselees what is going on in your heart that would make this something that you're repeating over and over and over. Instead, rejoice in your union with Christ's resurrection. Here's the bottom line here on this particular point. 
after you've sinned and after you have asked forgiveness and made restitution with, if possible, don't spend time looking inside. Well, how could a wonderful person like me have done that? Don't spend time looking around who's going to find out about this. Sit in the front row of theology class and look up and bask in God's forgiveness and bask in God's grace and bask in the fact that the, the Heavenly Father amazingly chooses to view us not clothed in the lenses of our sin, but instead clothed in the righteousness of his Son. So every minute I spend waste, uh, wallowing in my sin, is a second that I'm spending uh, that I'm not focusing on the joy that comes with my union with Christ. Every second I spend worrying about who might find out about this or I have to be sure I'm covering my tracks is a second I'm not spending in theology class rejoicing in the wonderful principle that I am justified, I have been declared righteous, the Heavenly Father chooses to view me through the finished work of His Son, joyful remembrance. Isn't that what we do at the Lord's table? Isn't that exactly what we do when we come together as a local church? And what is even printed on the front of many of our communion tables? Do this in remembrance of your sin? Do this in remembrance of me. And listen, some of us have situations, we, we all do, where we did certain things that were so stupid that there will be times when we're not even trying to, but they'll come back to mind. That happened for you, where you're just driving down the road, you see a sign, and you remember something stupid you did. Am I the only one who's in that situation? Please don't leave me hanging. That um, happens for sure. Well, what do we do? Do we go back into that funk again? No, if we have confessed it before God, if we've learned the lessons we need to learn, then we need to run to the front row seat in theology class and practice joyful remembrance. Well, what about our counselees who are like Aiken? What about our counselees who are just stuck in the past? What about our counselees who sinned, and then when confronted by it, they sinned again? Well, we all know the answer to that. It's time for honest self-confrontation. We have to be direct with persons like that. We have to be honest with persons like that. And biblical counseling shines here. The reason we call things sin is because we have an answer for sin. It's called the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's called the empty tomb. We don't have to be afraid of calling something sin because we have an answer. And so to confess your sin right away. And that's one of the things I love about being a biblical counselor. It's amazing how many of my counselees, when asked, when is the last time you confessed sin to God or to anybody else in your life, would respond with, I can't remember the last time. Well, no wonder you're stuck. And haven't you seen this in a counseling situation where you go out in the, the, the counseling waiting room and there's a husband and wife and they are so mad at each other that they won't even look at each other? We actually have times in our waiting room where the husband sits there and the wife sits over there. You have to make the rounds in order to, to gather them up and come back to the room. And they're so mad at each other, even in the way they walk down the hall, they're mad. They won't even turn to each other just like that, just, just like that. You know what it's like? And then they sit down in the office and they turn away from each other. And then you just ask them a, a couple of simple questions and they're actually having a fight right there in the office. They're, they're firing bombs at each other. 
And I don't know how you handle that, but for me, that's a great data gathering time. And I just sit back and I, I let it go for a while because I just want to understand the dynamics of that relationship. But then at some point, maybe it's session two, maybe it's session four, maybe it's session six, as, as God starts to get a grip on their hearts, that all of a sudden you have a breakthrough where that husband says, I have been sinning against God in that particular way. And to actually lead him right there in a prayer of confession and for him to, to cry out to God and ask forgiveness and speak specifically about the way he sinned and, and then to turn over at his, to his wife and say, Honey, please forgive me for the way that I have sinned against you in this particular way. And, and what do you see happen at that moment? The, the ice is melting. Right, the ice is melting, and all of a sudden, you just start, then generally speaking, the wife has some things that she wants to confess to God, and she wants to confess, and it's, I'm telling you, in the, you've seen this, haven't you? In the, the counseling room, the, the chairs start turning around like this, and all of a sudden, they're, they're facing each other, and then I love it because that's the time when you go out to get them in the waiting room, and they're sitting next to each other, and they're patting each other on the backs and all that kind of stuff. And when you call them to come, the husband takes her books and carries them back to the counseling room, like it's back to junior high, like, you, you poor thing, you can't carry your books. And so he's got all the books, and he's got her purse around her, all that whole hot mess. And they sit down, and they, they, they turn toward each other, and they're, they're patting each other on the, uh, on the knee and patting each other on the back. And then what's interesting, you ask them a question at that point. And when you're going after the husband, six weeks ago, the wife would have been tapping her foot. You go after him, preacher, get him, get him, get him. All of a sudden, she starts defending him. Right there in the counseling room, they turn on you. I'm telling you, and that is a crucial moment. That is a crucial moment when there's so much unity going on in that room that they're actually covering for each other instead of trying to expose you. I love that. I love it when they start doing the padding on the leg thing, padding on the back thing. I've even said to my counselees, do I need to leave the room? <laughs> How does that happen? It comes to the beauty of confession. It comes to the beauty of repentance. What other approach to counseling would possibly have that? Confess your sin right away. Make restitution if necessary. And bask in the joy of God's forgiveness. Now, I would suggest to you that Jill had events that fit into each one of those categories. And now what I want to ask you to do is to go back to Romans 6. And let me try to put some of this together with the story of Jill that I began uh, last night. We talked about our union with Christ, and we talked about um, some of what was said in the early part of this text about Jill's union with Christ and with our union with Christ. Let me just jump in, uh, oh, in verse 8, just for sake of time. And let's read a little bit further into this text and try to apply it to Jill. Now, if we have died with Christ, Paul says, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, now here's what I want you to note, because here's where the argument changes. We go from this is the gospel indicative to here's what you do as a result. Look at the commands. Even so, consider yourselves. Jill had to do that. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you would obey its lust. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but command, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. So what do we do with someone like Jill? My answer to that would be encourage our counselees to take specific actions because of this union. It's not just a matter of understanding your union with Christ. It's also a matter of taking specific actions. We're saying they have to discipline themselves to factor their union with Christ into specific situations. Like verse 11 Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the Greek word logizomai. It's an accounting term. So dad, be happy. I became an accountant. It is an accounting term. Recognize this. Consider this. Factor this into the equation. Well, what impact did that have on Jill? At some point in counseling, I had to ask her, if you really believe that you have been united with Christ, So it's not just a matter of Jesus saved you in the past and he has a plan for you in the future, but you are united with him in the here and now. What should change in your life? One of the answers that she came up with was, I have to have a new focus. And what she meant by that is I have to deal with this lust for approval. I have to deal with this craving to be approved by other people around me. I have to deal with this idol of approval. Yes, she had been rejected in the past. And yes, much of that was not her fault. But she, and I think this was a crucial point in this counseling case, she came to see that along with that, she had developed habits in her heart of craving the attention of people or the approval of people. That's where she was finding her satisfaction. That's where she was finding her joy. And friends, that was her responsibility. And she had to put that to death and she came to understand that now she had the responsibility to choose to find her joy in the acceptance that came from the heavenly father because she had been washed in the blood of the lamb and because she stood before God not in her own works not because because of her own performance but in the imputed righteousness of Christ she could rejoice there's no condemnation from him Nothing could separate her from his love. And that freed her up to begin serving the other people in her life instead of trying to gain their approval. And God in his sovereignty at that very time gave us a great test because her biological father invited Jill to come with him on a road trip to go to a family reunion. Jill had never been on a trip like that with her biological father. And in the past... Those kind of trips would have driven her crazy because she would have gotten in that car trying to get the approval of her father, trying to do things that were going to please him, blah, blah, blah. But because she was now understanding that she had been in bucket number two and she had confessed that and she had made that right. She was accounting logizomai herself differently because she's um, seen by the father as being clothed in the righteousness of the son. She's now freed up to serve her biological father. And we had all sorts of conversations. We role-played. Now, what's it going to be like when you get in the car? It's not going to be a matter of his dad talking to me about what I want to talk about, but instead I'm going to serve dad. 
and I'm going to ask him questions about his life, and I'm going to commend him for the things that he's doing well. I'm going to try to serve dad any way I possibly can. I'm going to try to get a bag of snacks, blah, 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 blah. And it was amazing to see her the week after she came back from that trip. And yes, there were times where she started to fall back into those patterns of, I've got to have his approval, but she reeled herself back in. She considered herself who, through the lens of the way God the Father saw her, and she was able to have greater conversation with her biological father and a more normal relationship with him than she had ever had in her entire life. And how do you think that impacted her emotionally? Do you think she came in depressed reporting that? She came in bounding down the hallway and reporting on the joy there was in just rejoicing in who she was in Christ and therefore being freed up to serve other people in her life. So this reckoning, logizomai, produced a new focus, a, a new adoration, a new worship. It also produced a new hope. One of Jill's greatest fears all along was that she was stuck. She was never going to get out of this cycle. It was pre-programmed depression for which there was no escape. And friend, at some point, she had to understand that was an affront to the person and power of Christ. Again, he wasn't just somebody who saved her in the past or would have a plan for her in the future. She was in him in the here and now. That's where the beauty of the resurrection fits into this discussion. She had to consider herself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And she now had a new way of relating to the people and the circumstances in her life that she had never experienced before. She now had hope. I have the living Christ inside of me, and I can't look at my situation and say, this is hopeless. This doctrine also gave her a new authenticity. Jill was amazed by Romans 7. How in the world could a guy like the Apostle Paul be so honest about his failures? How could he say, the things that I want to do, I sometimes don't do? The things that I don't want to do, I sometimes... How could Paul be so authentic in Romans 7? And what's the answer to that? Because he understood the, the gospel indicatives of Romans 6. And my stand before God is not dependent on my behavior. Therefore, I'm able to be authentic about my failure. That opened up a whole new avenue for Jill, where she was able to think back over her past and not take responsibility for what others had done for her, but to take responsibility for the way she sinned. Why do you think Jill's mother had her declared to be incorrigible at age 15? Because Jill, at age 15, was incorrigible. And at the right time and in the right way, Jill was instructed to go back and talk with her mother, her mother who by this time was on drugs, was on alcohol, had ruined her life, had been a terrible mother. But Jill had sinned too. See, it's not a matter of you sin and I don't. It's a matter of you sin, but I sin too. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm going to make that right. And it was amazing. When Jill finally worked up the courage and the godliness to go and speak to her mom about the ways that she had sinned. And yes, thankfully, her mom actually came back and asked for her forgiveness as well. And that started to um, help her cement a stronger relationship with her mom. There's so much more I could say about this. But another one of the imperatives in this text, you saw it, stop presenting yourself. Um, to sin, your body as an instrument of sin, 
but instead present yourself to God. It was at that point that um, Jill and her husband made an incredible decision. They decided this. Mom's life is spiraling out of control. We're going to refinish the basement of our house, and we're going to put a separate entrance into that basement. We're going to put a kitchen down there, and we're going to allow Mom to live in the basement of our house rent-free if she will get biblical counseling. And some of my final sessions with Jill were not just going to get Jill, but also having her sit there with her mother, whom she had despised at one point in her life. Does it surprise you that she was depressed? But now they had the kind of reconciled relationship where she and her husband were actually willing to show special love to that mom helping her mom get back on her feet and actually coming to biblical counseling together where I would work with Jill and Jill's mom would work with another one of our counselors. And the bottom line is, as a result of Jill being able to organize her past biblically, I'm not just a hopeless victim. I can learn how to deal with the abuses of my past, but I can also deal with the aspects of my past in which I sin. And when I handle that well, because of who I am in Christ, that allows me to make decisions that honor God. That allows me to put relationships back together. And the resultant effect emotionally is great, great joy. Now, thank you for allowing me to go through that a whole lot faster than I might have liked. But the bottom line is this. Let's try to help our counselees organize their past correctly. And let us try to bring the gospel to bear to each one of those categories in a way that helps us put our past in our place. Thank you very much. Copyright 2014, IBCD, all rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.